You know, we're, we're doing a, uh, we started last week a summer series on the book of Genesis, and I missed last week. I heard it was good. I need to get the, the, um, the podcast, but, um, we, we, we started this new series and we started doing this a little bit more of a teaching team where we sort of get together and, you know, with my dad and Andy and a handful of us, um, we, we talk about what direction we want to, um, take messages and if we want to do series or not, or, you know, just create some intention together, you know, and so we're handing out, we got, we got really excited. So I've actually been really excited about teaching more than I've been in a long time. And, uh, the meeting was exciting and, um, and we start handing out, okay, we decided we're going to talk about Genesis all summer and just some foundational stuff. And, um, we start handing out topics and I got the topic of the flood I was like, oh man, for real? I got to talk about the flood? I was like, at the moment, I was like, I have about three minutes worth of stuff to talk about the flood. What's interesting, I was like, I haven't read that. I mean, I've read through it a bunch, and obviously I've read it. Um, but I haven't read those chapters of the Bible really intentionally in a long time, and I got really excited. And now I have like seven pages worth of stuff to talk about. So you guys want to jump in here? All right. It's a little bit of history, a little bit of context. So God created a beautiful world that he called good, and in it he put all types of good things. In in this universe, he placed a man and woman who he made in his image to be the very expression of himself in the world, to care for the world and to manifest the heart, will, and intentions of God in this place that he loved. The world would hang in the balance for these creatures. And when they lost their way, the world fell into chaos. This is known as the fall of man and original sin. Though I'd like to point out that God called man and the world good in the beginning, and original blessing precedes original sin. I believe we're made good, but find ourselves in chaos of the age and are in need of spiritual transformation to return back to the goodness that God placed within us when he breathed into us the first time. But in the years after the fall, man populated the earth, as was mandated by God. However, man had become increasingly corrupt and prone to violence. God watched. As the creatures that were intended to express the depths of his love to the universe began to mar and disfigure one another. God was grieved to see his beautiful things come. To such bitter circumstances. He wished he'd not made them. So he found a man named Noah whose family wasn't given to the corruption of the age and he decided to start over with them. He called Noah to build a large boat type thing that we call the ark. Everyone knows the story, Noah and the ark. Where he would keep his family and representatives of every animal species. Then God would send a huge flood and basically destroy the entire earth. After the water subsided, God made a covenant with Noah. He gave him the same same mandate he'd given Adam and Eve, and as a sign, he hung a bow in the sky. And God God promised he would never do it again. So I don't think he enjoyed it the first time. So I, I want to I start out with some commentary on about how we believe the Bible, if that's okay. Um, 
Because there are a lot of different types of people in this room, and I want to do church with everybody. It doesn't mean that everybody's right, but it doesn't mean that I'm right either. You know what I mean? It doesn't mean that I'm right. It doesn't mean the way I approach the Bible is necessarily right. Okay? But I have an extremely high regard for Scripture. I value it more now than I ever have in my entire life. It also perplexes me more than ever, but I think this is a sign of maturity. The more you know, the more you realize how much you don't know. When I was 16, I used to think that I was almost as good as Jimi Hendrix was on the guitar. Right? Uh, At 37, I realized I will never in my lifetime come close to even understanding his ability on the electric guitar. And I'm a way better guitar player now than I was at 16. So... I want to say this, there is something that the most fundamental literalist and the most staunch atheist can agree on, is that some parts of the Bible are historical and some parts of the Bible are prophetic or allegorical. Everybody knows that, right? For instance, Jesus said, um, Jesus said I'm going to tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days, right? He didn't, he didn't tear the temple down. He was talking about his body, Right? And so we see throughout the Bible, in different parts of the Bible, there are things that are prophetic, prophetic language, and there are things that are historical, right? Here's a good example. In the Old Testament, the Old Testament said that Elijah was going to return, right? But Elijah didn't come back. Jesus actually said that John the Baptist was Elijah. But um, if you were a hardcore literalist at that time, you would have missed out on Jesus because you would have said, that's not Elijah, that's a guy named John from down the street, right? Here's another example. People would like this to be allegorical, but I think it's literal. People would like to imagine that when Jesus said, love your enemy, he was speaking in prophetic or allegorical language. But in that case, my personal opinion is that I'm afraid he was not. I think he meant we should actually love our enemies. He actually said that the evidence of a mature believer would be that they did love their enemies. Right? We treat it like it's not literal, but I'm pretty sure it was. We know that the Bible employs many different genres of literature. Jesus told parables that he never claimed to be true. The book of Job is written entirely in poetic stanzas, so it's obviously based on real events but can't be an exact historical account, right? So is Genesis history allegory? Is it historical allegory? And you know what? I am not going to tell you. I'm not going to tell you. And here's why. Because there are many people, many different types of people in this room who approach Scripture differently. Some of you would approach it as historical fact, and others would approach the story as allegory, then others would imagine that's a little bit of both. And to be honest, at different phases of my life, I have thought all of these three things. All right? And the way we approach Scripture is probably really important. I'm not saying that it isn't important. I'm not saying that one way isn't right. One of those ways is is correct. I'm not saying that it's not important. But the way we believe is so the way we believe is probably important. But there are things that I think are more important. One, what's more important is that we actually engage with scripture, that we take the story in and allow the Holy Spirit to teach us and work the words of scripture into our lives. 
And number two, which is even more important than that, is that we love, value, respect, and do church with people who believe on all different spectrums. If I can't go to church with all types of believers, then I don't want to go to church. Church isn't a place we go because we believe the same things. In fact, it's the opposite. It's a place where we learn to love one another despite our differences. Right? So that being said, let's dive in here. Let's fit a bunch of animals on a boat. No, there is so much truth, so much truth in here. There's so much to talk about, um, I'm probably not going to get to all of it. But let me make some observations. My first observation, and this blew my mind. 37 years old, and I've been a believer since I was at least 7 years old. 30 years, I, I've known this story, and I never caught this. The story of the flood is God's commentary on violence. Obviously, Noah is a type of Christ and the ark, a type of the cross and the tomb, right? And the resurrection and the new creation and all that. Absolutely. But also, the story of the flood is God's commentary on violence. The story is bookended with God's commentary on violence. Here's how the story begins. Now, the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God called the earth, God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence. That's how he opened it up to Noah violence. God hates violence. And I know you're sitting there and you're like, duh, we know God hates violence. I know this seems like a given, but I think it's important that we return to these simple concepts on a regular basis. We cannot afford to get away from certain incredibly important aspects of of Scripture. God hates violence. Ezekiel 33 says, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I remember a while back when they caught Osama bin Laden and he had been killed. And I remember people were, you know, celebrating in the streets. And I, there's part of me that was glad they caught him. But, you know, I just didn't feel right watching those people celebrate. And this scripture came to mind. You know, God was not excited. God does not enjoy the death of any person. Even the most wicked people. He is not excited and takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So here's something we can talk about later, but I'm going to throw it out there at you. You know, America is a pretty violent country. For countries in our category of average wealth per person, we're one of the most violent with often three and four times the amount of murders per per 100,000 people than most other countries in our socioeconomic class. But how often when people talk about what's wrong with the nation, do we bring up violence? I feel like if I was in a, a meeting with spiritual leaders of our particular stream and started talking about America and what's wrong with America, I don't think that violence would even come up. And I can't prove that, but... But Jesus said this. Jesus said that murder begins in the heart. Matthew 5. Matthew 
Matthew 5, 21. You've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hellfire. To the hellfire. That's pretty rough. <laughs> um, but the, to, the word there for you fool, basically, it is the word that means you are less than a person. You are less than a person. And I, I want to throw this out there, just something to think about. I think when you, when you look at history, whenever you see people treated less than human on a mass level, I think there's almost always hellfire that follows. There's always war and terror will always follow when people are mistreated too long. I think that'd be an interesting study to go back in history and compare the most violent countries today with the way people have been treated throughout the last 100, 200 years in those countries. That'd be a really interesting study. War and terror seem to always follow when people are treated like less. But here's the thing is that we all have biases and if you think you don't have them, then that's a sure sign that you do. So we all have biases. We're all set up, pre-programmed a certain way to favor things, one way and favor things another. But Jesus will always challenge your biases. Some of you don't like Christians very much. <laughs> he might be challenging you. Another observation, Noah walked with God. I've read, this, I've read this phrase throughout the Bible most of my life, and I never really thought about it. I just thought that meant Noah was a believer. Noah was a good dude. Because we usually talk about our walk, but Noah walked with God. When I thought about it, it is only used a handful of times through Scripture. Several people in the Bible are said to have walked with God, and I just thought about that picture. You know, that, um, in in earlier part of Genesis, it talks about how in the evenings, Adam used to walk with God in the cool of the evening they used to walk. And you think about before you had TV, it was nice out, what would you do with someone you really liked? You would go for a walk, right? But more than that, walking, walking speaks of moving. You walk throughout your life. You move throughout your life. And if you're walking with God, it has this picture of you caring or walking alongside God, Uh, Micah says in chapter 6, he says, uh, He's told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness. That word could also be uh, translated mercy. And to walk humbly with God. A man of mercy and justice in a time of great violence would have made Noah a significant man. A significant man. What does it mean to walk with God? Dallas Willard teaches um, that it's unfortunate how our modern Christianity has revolved around systems of belief and moralism rather than discipleship or apprenticeship to Christ. We generate cultures of people whose lives are defined by abstinence and talk, but who often never actually engage in the Christian life. 
We say, think the right thoughts, sign your name on the dots, and if you don't screw up, we might let you join the club. I wrote that. That's my quote. Jesus just says, follow me. Jesus just says, follow me. The disciples even ask, well, where do you stay? Where are you from? He's like, come see. Come see. And the beautiful thing about all the stuff we're worried about, about the moralism and about belief structures and about all this other stuff, the beauty is that all that stuff falls in line when you start walking with Jesus. I think we have it backwards. We want like conversion experience. Now, then you're allowed to walk with Jesus. And Jesus is like, hey man, I ain't got time to stop. Let's just go walking. Let's just go. I think that what happened to the disciples, he didn't require any sort of conversion experience or allegiance from any of them in the beginning for the most part. I mean, there was the rich man and there were a couple of people who came to him and who were afraid and he challenged them. But for the most part, when he met the disciples, even one, one of the disciples insulted him. He's like, what good can come out of Nazareth? And Jesus is like, come see, follow me. Follow me. Walking with God is a posture, not a position. Faith is not knowing the end from the beginning. Faith is, having, faith is not having the right answers. Faith is not even determination. Faith is simply engaging with God, walking with God, practicing awareness of God and applying the Jesus-led practices in the little things in life. Matthew 18 says the greatest in the kingdom has to become like a child. And so it brings me to think about how does God receive you? How does he receive you? Does he take a look at you? Is, is who you are when you die, is that who you are the moment you die? Or does God look at your whole life and does he see you at your best and take you at your best? Or does he see you at your worst and take you at your worst? Or does he like grade you like in school, you know? They combine all your grades together and you get the average grade of all your grades. Does he take you like that? Or is it different? And that sounds like a dumb question, but if you think about it, think about, um, I think about my grandmother. She's an amazing lady. Amazing lady. But at the end of her life, she couldn't remember my name. If she had the answer, she certainly didn't have the answers at the end of her life. But was she any less who she was than before? And I think about my children. One of my favorite quotes from one of my sons is, uh, we're driving downtown, he sees the lights on and the building. He's like, yeah, they're working late. He's like, they're busy selling taxes to the government. <laughs> he certainly doesn't have all the answers, right? But he's certainly still who he is, right? So if, if faith is about having all the right answers and knowing all the right things, then you've got to take my grandmother as wonderful, great she, and you push her out of the equation. You have to take my children, and you have to push them out of the equation. Only the smartest people in the very middle get to have faith, right? That obviously is not the Jesus way. Otherwise, how can he say greatest in the kingdom has to become like a child? It's because faith and the Christian walk are something different. Those other things are included, and they come along, and they are part of the journey, but they are not 
the journey. Engaging with God and understanding God are two different things. And you can understand God and not engage with God. And you can engage with God and not understand God. But you'll understand God better after you engage with him, right? What you think and believe at 4, 24, 44, 64, 94 will absolutely change. So this Christian life cannot be about the right answers or belief structures. It's got to be about something else. It's got to be about walking with Jesus. It's got to be about the posture of your heart towards God. Noah walked with God. How beautiful is that? And how freeing is that? Jesus, I don't, I don't know about, you know, all this Genesis stuff. He said, Just follow me, right? Jesus, I don't understand penal substitution theology. Follow me. Jesus, I'm not sure if I believe in God today. Follow me, right? Engage. Engage. Everything else will work, it, work itself out if you engage. Another observation, Noah built something. Noah spent a lot of time with a hammer in his hands before the flood, and the rest of the world did not. Jesus said in Matthew 24, For as those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So I think the story of Noah and the flood begs the question, what are you building? What are you building? Because from, for every one of us, there is a flood coming. There's always a flood coming. There's a time coming when you can no longer do what you do today. There's a time coming when you will no longer have the opportunity to build what you haven't already built. There's a time coming when you cannot do what you have not done. In your life, there's a flood coming. In the world, there's a flood coming. In your marriage, there's a flood coming. In your relationship with your kids, there's a flood coming. In your relationship with God, there's a flood coming. In your relationship with yourself, there's a flood coming. In your job, there's a flood coming. In your hobbies, there's a flood coming. In your friendships, there's a flood coming. In your politics, in your culture, and in reality, and in your faith, there's a flood coming. It may be soon, it may be later, but there is a change coming in your life. And many changes. Obviously, death and moving on into the afterlife, into, the, into your heavenly reward, right? That's a big one. Right? But there are all sorts of other things like your kids when they grow up. You know? I have friends whose kids grow up and they have the blessing to have great friendships with their kids. Then I have friends whose kids moved away and they see him once a year. Maybe. Then I have a friend who works at assisted living place and he has these some families their kids never come visit. Is there are no guarantees. There's a flood coming. Things will change. And what you don't do in these days may not be done if you don't do it. What you don't, what you 
don't build in your marriage, what you don't build in your kids, what you don't build with your friends, what you don't build with your job, what you don't build with your faith, what you don't build within yourself, there will come a time and point when you no longer have the opportunity to do that. I'm not trying to be a bummer here. We're all still alive. There's still opportunity. We're all still here, right? And you've been given time to either build something that will last or build something that will be consumed by the flood. Jesus said, build your house on the rock. The people who hear and do the words he spoke are the people who build on the rock. Jesus tells us here how to build something that will last. And did you know that love, joy, peace, patience, kindness are all things we build or cultivate? The picture in the Bible is fruit. It's cultivated. You plant it. You water it. You trim it. You take care of it. Coogan knows about that. My wife knows about that. I'm not good with plants. My plants die. But all these things are things built or cultivated. Love is something you build. Love is something that you cultivate. The English, English language is terrible when it comes to love. We fall in love. We find love. Or we make love, right? But none of these things are love. These things have to do with desire. These things are only invitations. Places we start, these things are only invitations to love. They're certainly precious, and I'm not devaluing any of those things. But they're precious and beautiful in the way a baby is precious and beautiful, but still not entirely yet formed. And joy is the same. We all feel entitled to joy. And once again, we're given joy in seed form, but joy must be built, practiced, and mastered. But we're tricked into thinking that good things in life are spontaneous or just happen to us. And that's true in one sense is that God gives us way more than we deserve, but your joy, your love, your patience, your kindness, all those good things don't happen by accident. Those things happen because you choose to build on top of the gifts the Lord's given you. Amen? Forgiveness, thankfulness, kindness, none of these are accidents. They're given in seed form like babies and must be raised to maturity to see real fruit. We're given the raw material, but we must build them into something significant if we want them to weather our storms. So what are you building? What are you making? You've been given such a precious gift of life and existence. What the heck are you doing with it? Whatever stage of life you're in, you can still get busy living. You can still get busy living. So a little bit of application here is let's pick a few things we're going to cultivate and build this week. It's not what you do on a day that matters, but what you do every day that matters. Five minutes a day is better than hours once a month. Some of us need to work on our relationship with Jesus. Some of us need to work on a relationship with our kids or our spouse, other people, or, or other people the Lord's place in our life. Some of us need to work on our relationship with ourselves. Some of us have been bad to ourselves mistreated ourselves and think poorly of ourselves and that breaks God's heart you don't have the right to speak to yourself in a demeaning way 
Number one, you don't belong to you, you belong to the Lord. So you have no right to look in the mirror and insult yourself. You have no place to do that. That is not your right. You don't have a right to speak to yourself that way. You need to demand respect from yourself. Even the spiritual term dying to self does not mean self, what is the word? Degrading. What it means is dying to who you think you are and growing in who you actually are. Dying to your ego and your false expectations of yourself in the world. But it doesn't mean becoming a terrible person or speaking down to yourself. Right? Stop doing that. Build a good relationship with you. Speak kindly to yourself. Expect better of yourself. And live a healthier, better life. Before you can stop violence on other people, you've got to stop your own violence to yourself. How much time do I have? I don't see the clock. Ten minutes. I'm just going to throw some things at you. God loved the unclean animals too. He put the unclean animals on the boat. God loves the stuff he made. It's not okay to destroy the world, ladies and gentlemen. Because God loves it. God loves the world. And I know there's supposed to be a new heaven and a new earth, but he's going to give you a new body too. You still brush your teeth. So if you don't brush your teeth, they're going to fall out. And if you don't take care of the world, it's going to fall apart. And God will fix it. But it's going to be painful when it does fall apart, ladies and gentlemen. I got more to say on that. And you don't, we don't even have to agree. But there, there are areas we can agree. And that's if we make things better and the world doesn't fall apart, then we just made the world better. Cool? I mean, <laughs> it's kind of like this. You hear through the grapevine that your landlord's going to raise your rent. You're like, he's not going to do that. He's not going to raise my rent. But you know what? I'm going to save just in case he does raise my rent. Then if you're wrong and he raises your rent, you're like, Glad I saved. And then you know what? If you're right, and he didn't raise your rent, you're like, I have some extra money in the bank, right? So if we take care of the environment, and it turns out that the whole thing isn't falling to pieces, but we make a better world to live in and for our children, then hey, that works out the better anyway, doesn't it? So that's all I'll say about that, okay? You'll forget about that when I get into this next one here, so. Okay. So, <clears throat> my kids have this book. I should have brought it because you need to buy it for all your kids. And you need to buy it for yourself. It's the most beautiful children's book about Bible stories I've ever read. And this lady, I can't remember her name, but absolutely phenomenal writing. And she opened up something at the end of the story. Because I read this to my kids this week. Because, of course, that's what I'm thinking about, right? At the end of the story, she talks about how God said, I don't ever want to do that again. That was painful. I don't want to do that again. I don't want to destroy everything I created again like that. And so he took his war bow, the bow he used to smite humanity. And he hung it. And he hung it up. And the beauty is that the bow is, it's, a, it's not a bow like you tie on a present. It's a bow and arrow. That's what a rainbow is, Right? And the bow is facing up. It's facing up. (laughs) 
Jesus said, come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. God's war bow, his wrath. His wrath was now aimed upward at himself. And he would never destroy the earth again with a flood. But instead, he would take the blow himself. He would take the hit himself. He would be destroyed. He would take the violence upon himself next time. And the next flood would pour out on all flesh. And it would be a flood of spirit. It would be the flood of the Holy Spirit and joy and healing. That would be the next flood. We all, with, we all battle with anger, shame, and fear. We're all full of violence of one kind or another, but Jesus intends to take the punch. Jesus takes the blow. Jesus feels the sting. Jesus absorbs the weight. Otherwise, in the maddening world we live in, your violence will eat you alive and turn you into a shell at best or at worst, a rabid beast of a person. But I'm convinced you can channel your disappointments, your resentment, your rage, your inequality, your hate, your shortcomings, your abuse, your loss, and all your baggage in his direction, and he will suck it up. He will take it and return to you beauty for ashes, new clothes for the monkey on your back. Or you can take all of that stuff and project it out into the world and the world will return it to you with interest, rain it back down on you in a fury with extreme prejudice. And you alone will feel the weight of all your personal violence and it will destroy you. He's not going to build your house for you, but he's going to show you where to build and it's on top of him. This is my last um, observation here. Is that God gave Noah Adam's mandate. It's the same words that God spoke to Adam in the beginning. He re-spoke those exact same words to Noah after the flood. He gave him the same mandate. Paul calls Jesus the second Adam the image of the invisible God. As Adam and Noah were intended to be the expressions of God in the world, Jesus was the fulfillment. Jesus was a son of Adam and a son of Noah and a son of Abraham and a son of David. All these men were types of Christ and Jesus was their fulfillment. Jesus is who Adam, Noah, Abraham, and David were supposed to be. And in Christ, we enter into those same promises to be a part of the making to be a part of making the world right again. To be part of making the world right again. To show the world what God looks like and to once again become the image, the expression of his love, goodness, and power in the world. How do you think about the world around you? Do you take responsibility for your neighbors? Who are your neighbors? What are the ramifications and repercussions of your life? What are the consequences of the way you live? Are you aware that your life is not neutral and the way you live affects people you see and people you don't? Do you want the sum total of your existence to be a burden on the world 
or do you want to be a blessing? Are you even okay with your existence being a draw or a wash? Once we've encountered the gospel, we can no longer be like cattle, mindless consumers, because there is just too much joy to be had in posturing yourself as an architect of good fortune. There is too much joy to be had as a purveyor of God's goodness to the world. So this is what I'm going to leave you with. What are you building? Look at your life without anger, shame, or anxiety, but with hope in your heart. Ask, what should I build? Thank you, guys. Amen, amen. Why don't we stand up together, stretch our legs a little bit. I'll dismiss in just a second, but I really feel like we need to respond to that word. Um, The Lord spoke to me this week in a way I haven't heard him talk to me in a long time. It's probably been about five years since I've heard the Lord speak to me in this way. And to be honest with you, it 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 was refreshing to hear him speak like this again. Um, but at the same time, it was pretty scary. Um, sometimes I feel like I'm really bored with my life, and, um, and I'm not sure why that is. And <clears throat> I was actually asking the Lord about that, and he said, he said this to me. I said, Lord, I'm bored. And he said, do you want to find your life? And I said, of course I do. He said, well, then you've got to lose it. And... The implications of that phrase are huge for us as followers of Jesus. But to respond to this, this thing about building our life in a way, well, to build it on the rock, the implications of that, I I guarantee you this, it'll lead you to a life that's not boring. (laughs) There's a risk element in the, faith, in the faith walk that is inherent. And I've found that when I'm trying to avoid risk in my life is usually when I get really bored. And that's not the life that the Spirit has for me. And I, I, so often I, I try to avoid building my life on the rock by avoiding the things of the Spirit, by avoiding faith, by avoiding risk. And really, Jesus is saying, follow me. But he's only going into risky places. (laughs) That's why so few people do it. But I feel like the Lord has built into our chests this heart. We have these hearts that only come alive when we step into that life of risk, when we step into that life of faith, when we step into that life of following after Jesus. Amen? That's going to look different for each of us. Thankfully, that it does look different. But let's, just, let's have our prayer today be, Father, move us out into that risky place. Let your spirit lead us to that place where we feel alive again in our hearts. I, I, was, I was catching that in worship today. There was this kind of like this first love thing happening in worship today. I don't know if you were catching that, but I felt like the Spirit was drawing us back into those early seasons of our life when we felt Him in such a beautiful way. It's not like 
that love is going to be the same all the way through our life. But I do sense that the Lord wants to reinvigorate us. He wants to call us to life again in those places that we felt so alive before. Amen. Holy Spirit, we thank you for this meaty word today. And we ask that it would go deep into our hearts. It would go deep into our minds. It would go deep into our spirits. And we just want to say yes to you, God, that you would teach us how to lose our life in order to find it. How to give up those idols, those altars that we've built, how to tear those things down and exchange them for the things that the Spirit has for us. And we thank you, God, that that we don't have to compare ourselves to another brother or sister, but Father, you have a life of life for each one of us. And we just want to attune our ears to what your spirit is saying to us. And we pray for hands and feet that obey you when you speak. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. Stephen, do we have ministry team? Ministry team, come on up. Folks, if you have any prayer needs today, our fantastic prayer ministry team will be up here. You can come up for anything that you need. They'll pray over you. They'll pray with you. They'll pray into your life. Don't be shy. Um, For the rest of you, meet somebody, hug somebody, take somebody out to lunch, invite somebody over to your house, call somebody this week.